Book Second of the Joyful Wisdom, Part One. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Joyful Wisdom by Friedrich Nietzsche, translated by Thomas Common. Book Second, Part One. Fifty-seven. To the realists, ye sober beings who feel yourselves armed against passion and fantasy and would gladly make a pride and an ornament out of your emptiness. Ye call yourselves realists, and give to understand that the world is actually constituted as it appears to you. Before you alone reality stands unveiled, and ye yourselves would perhaps be the best part of it. O oh, ye dear images of Sias! But are not ye also, in your unveiled condition, still extremely passionate, and dusky beings compared with a fish, and still all too like an enamoured artist? Translator's footnote, Schiller's poem, The Veiled Image of Sias, is again referenced here. End of translator's note. And what is, quote, reality, unquote, to an enamoured artist? Ye still carry about with you the valuations of things which had their origin in the passions and infatuations of earlier centuries. There is still a secret and ineffaceable drunkenness embodied in your sobriety. Your love of, quote, reality, unquote, for example, oh, that old primitive, quote, love, unquote. In every feeling, in every sense impression, there is a portion of this old love, and similarly, also, some kind of fantasy, prejudice, irrationality, ignorance, fear, and whatever else has become mingled and woven into it. There is that mountain, there is that cloud. What is, quote, real, unquote, in them? Remove the phantasm, and the whole human element, therefrom, ye sober ones, Yes, if ye could do that! If ye could forget your origin, your past, your preparatory schooling, your whole history as man and beast, there is no, quote, reality, unquote, for us. Nor for you either, ye sober ones. We are far from being so alien to one another as ye suppose. And perhaps your goodwill will get beyond drunkenness, is just as respectable as your belief that ye are altogether incapable of drunkenness. 58. Only as creators. It has caused me the greatest trouble, and forever causes me the greatest trouble, to perceive that unspeakably more depends on what things are called than on what they are. The reputation the name, an appearance, the importance, the usual measure and weight of things, each being in origin most frequently an error, and arbitrariness thrown over the things like a garment, and quite alien to their essence, and even to their exterior, have gradually, by the belief therein, and its continuous growth from generation to generation, grown as it were, on and into things, and become their very body. The appearance at the very beginning becomes almost always the essence in the end, and operates as the essence. 
What a fool would he be who would think it was enough to refer here to this origin and this nebulous veil of illusion in order to annihilate that which virtually passes for the world, namely so-called, quote, reality, unquote. It is only as creators that we can annihilate. But let us not forget this, it suffices to create new names and valuations and probabilities in order, in the long run, to create new, quote, things, unquote. 59. We Artists When we love a woman, we have readily a hatred against nature, on recollecting all the disagreeable natural functions to which every woman is subject. We prefer not to think of them at all. But if once our soul touches on these things, it twitches impatiently, and glances, as we have said, contemptuously at nature. We are hurt. Nature seems to enroach upon our possessions, and with the profanest hands. We then shut our ears against all physiology, and we decree in secret that, quote, we will hear nothing of the fact that a man is something else than soul and form, unquote. Quote, the man under the skin, unquote, is an abomination and monstrosity, a blasphemy of God and of love to all lovers. Well, just as the lover still feels with respect to nature and natural functions, so did every worshipper of God and his, quote, holy omnipotence, unquote, formerly feel. In all that was said of nature by astronomers, geologists, physiologists, and physicians, he saw an enroachment on his most precious possession, and consequently an attack, and moreover, also an impertinence of the assailant. The, quote, law of nature, unquote, sounded to him as blasphemy against God. In truth, he would too willingly have seen the whole of mechanics traced back to moral acts of volition and arbitrariness. But because nobody could render him this service, he concealed nature and mechanism from himself as best he could, and lived in a dream. Oh, those men of former times understood how to dream, and did not need first to go to sleep. And we men of the present day also still understand it too well, with our good will for wakefulness and daylight. It suffices to love, to hate, to desire, and in general to feel. Immediately the spirit and the power of the dream come over us, and we ascend with open eyes and indifferent to all danger. The most dangerous paths to the roofs and towers of fantasy, and without any giddiness, as persons born for climbing, we the night-walkers by day, we artists, we concealers of naturalness, we moonstruck and godstruck ones, we dead, silent, untiring wanderers on heights, which we do not see as heights, but as our plains, as our places of safety. 60. Women and their effect in the distance. 
Have I still ears? Am I only ear, and nothing else besides? Here I stand in the midst of the surging of the breakers, whose white flames fork up to my feet. From all sides there is howling, threatening, crying, and screaming at me, while in the lowest depths the old earth-shaker sings his aria, hollow, like a roaring bull. He beats such an earth-shaker's measure thereto, that even the hearts of these weathered rock-monsters tremble at the sound. Then suddenly, as if born out of nothingness, there appears before the portal of this hellish labyrinth, only a few fathoms distant, a great sailing ship gliding silently along like a ghost. Oh, this ghostly beauty! With what enchantment it seizes me! What? Has all the repose and silence in the world embarked here? Does my happiness itself sit in this quiet place, my happier ego, my second immortalized self, still not dead, yet also no longer living? As a ghost-like calm, gazing, gliding, sweeping, neutral being, similar to the ship, which, with its white sails, like an immense butterfly, passes over the dark sea, yes, passes over existence, that is it, that would it be. It seems that the noise here has made me a visionary. All great noise causes one to place happiness in the calm and the distance. When a man is in the midst of his hubbub, in the midst of the breakers of his plots and plans, he there sees perhaps calm, enchanting beings glide past him, for whose happiness and retirement he longs. They are women. He almost thinks that there with the woman dwells his better self, that in these calm places even the loudest breakers become still as death, and life itself a dream of life. But still, but still, my noble enthusiast, there is also in the most beautiful sailing ship so much noise and bustling, and alas, so much petty, pitiable bustling. The enchantment and the most powerful effect of women is, to use the language of philosophers, an effect at a distance, an actio in distance. There belongs hitherto, however, primarily and above all, distance. 61. In honour of friendship. That the sentiment of friendship was regarded by antiquity as the highest sentiment, higher even than the most vaunted pride of the self-sufficient and wise. Yea, as it were its sole and still holier brotherhood, is very well expressed by the story of the Macedonian king, who made a present of a talent to a cynical Athenian philosopher, from whom he received it back again. What? said the king. Has he then no friend? 
he thereby meant to say, quote, I honour his pride of the wise and independent man, but I should also have honoured his humanity still higher, if the friend in him had gained the victory over his pride. The philosopher has lowered himself in my estimation, for he showed that he did not know one of the two highest sentiments, and in fact the higher of them." Unquote. 62. Love. Love pardons even the passion of the beloved. 63. Woman in Music. How does it happen that warm and rainy winds bring the musical mood and the inventive delight in melody with them? Are they not the same winds that fill the churches and give women amorous thoughts? 64. Skeptics. I fear women, who have become old, are more skeptical in their secret recesses of their hearts than any of the men are. They believe in the superficiality of existence as in its essence, and all virtue and profundity is to them only the disguising of this quote, truth. Unquote the very desirable disguising of a pedendum, an affair, therefore, of decency and modesty, and nothing more. 65. Devotedness. There are noble women with a certain poverty of spirit, who, in order to express their profound devotedness, have no other alternative but to offer their virtue and modesty. It is the highest thing they have. And this present is often accepted without putting the recipient under such a deep obligation as the giver supposed. A very melancholy story. 66. The Strength of the Weak Women are all skillful in exaggerating their weaknesses. Indeed, they are inventive in weaknesses so as to seem quite fragile ornaments to which even a grain of dust does harm. Their existence is meant to bring home to man's mind his coarseness, and to appeal to his conscience. They thus defend themselves against the strong and all, quote, rights of might, unquote. 67. Self-dissembling. She loves him now, and has since been looking forth as with quiet confidence as a cow. But alas, it was precisely his delight that she seemed so fitful and absolutely incomprehensible. He had rather too much steady weather in himself already. Would she not do well to feign her old character? To feign indifference? Does not love itself advise her to do so? Vivat Comedia. 68. Will and Willingness. Someone brought a youth to a wise man and said, See, this is the one who is being corrupted by women. The wise man shook his head and smiled. It is men, he called out, who corrupt women, and everything that women lack should be atoned for and improved in men. For man creates for himself the ideal of woman, 
and woman moulds herself according to this ideal. You are too tender-hearted towards women, said one of the bystanders. You do not know them. The wise man answered, Man's attribute is will, woman's attribute is willingness. Such is the law of the sexes, verily, a hard law for women. All human beings are innocent of their existence. Women, however, are doubly innocent. Who could have enough of salve and gentleness for them? What about salve? What about gentleness? called out another person in the crowd. We must educate women better. We must educate men better, said the wise man, and made a sign to the youth to follow him. The youth, however, did not follow him. 69. Capacity for Revenge That a person cannot, and consequently will not defend himself, does not yet cast disgrace upon him in our eyes. But we despise the person who has neither the ability nor the good will for revenge, whether it be a man or a woman. Would a woman be able to captivate us, paren, or, as people say, to, quote, fetter, unquote, us, end paren, whom we did not credit with knowing how to employ the dagger, paren, any kind of dagger, end paren, skilfully against us in certain circumstances, or against herself, which in a certain case might be the severest revenge, paren, the Chinese revenge, end paren. 70. The Mistresses of the Masters A powerful contralto voice, as we occasionally hear it in the theatre, raises suddenly for us the curtain of possibilities in which we usually do not believe. All at once we are convinced that somewhere in the world there may be women with high, heroic, royal souls, capable and prepared for magnificent remonstrances, resolutions and self-sacrifices, capable and prepared for domination over men. Because in them the best in man, superior to sex, has become a corporeal ideal. To be sure, it is not the intention of the theatre that such voices should give such a conception of women. They are usually intended to represent the ideal male lover, for example, a Romeo. But, to judge by my experience, the theatre regularly miscalculates here, and the musician also, who expects such effects from such a voice. People do not believe in these lovers. These voices still contain a tinge of the motherly and housewifely character, and most of all when love is in their tone. 71. On Female Chastity there is something quite astonishing and extraordinary in the education of women of the higher class. Indeed, there is perhaps nothing more paradoxical. All the world is agreed to educate them with as much ignorance as possible in eroticus, and to inspire their soul with profound shame of such things, and the extremest impatience and horror at the suggestion of them 
It is really here only that all their honour of women is at stake. What would one not forgive them in other respects? But here they are intended to remain ignorant to the very backbone. They are intended to have neither eyes, ears, word, nor thoughts for this. Their quote, wickedness, unquote. indeed knowledge here is already evil. And then to be hurled as with an awful thunderbolt into reality and knowledge with marriage, and indeed by him whom they most love and esteem, to have encountered love and shame in contradiction, yea, to have to feel rapture, abandonment, duty, sympathy and fright at the unexpected proximity of God and animal, and whatever else besides, all at once. There, in fact, a psychic entanglement has been effected which is quite unequalled. Even the sympathetic curiosity of the wisest discerner of men does not suffice to divine how this or that woman gets along with the solution of this enigma, and the enigma of this solution. What dreadful far-reaching suspicions must awake thereby in the poor unhinged soul! And forsooth, how the ultimate philosophy and scepticism of women casts anchor at this point. Afterwards, the same profound silence as before, and often even a silence to herself, a shutting of her eyes to herself. Young wives on that account make great efforts to appear superficial and thoughtless, the most ingenious of them simulate a kind of impudence. Wives easily feel their husbands as a question mark to their honour, and their children as an apology or atonement. They require children, and wish for them in quite another spirit than a husband wishes for them. In short, one cannot be gentle enough towards women. 72. Mothers Animals think differently from men with respect to females. With them the female is regarded as the productive being. There is no paternal love among them. But there is such a thing as love of children of a beloved, and a habituation to them. In the young, the females find gratification for their lust of dominion. The young are a property, an occupation, something quite comprehensible to them, with which they can chatter, all this conjointly is maternal love. It is to be compared to the love of the artist for his work. Pregnancy has made the females gentler, more expectant, more timid, more submissively inclined, and similarly, intellectual pregnancy engenders the character of the contemplative, who are allied to women in character. They are the masculine mothers. Among animals, the masculine sex is regarded as the beautiful sex. 73. Saintly Cruelty A man holding a newly born child in his hands came to a saint. What shall I do with this child? he asked. It is wretched, deformed, and has not even enough life to die. Kill it, cried the saint with a dreadful voice. Kill it, and then hold it in thy arms for three days and three nights to brand it on thy memory. Thus wilt thou never again beget a child, when it is not the time for thee to beget. 
When the man had heard this, he went away disappointed, and many found fault with the saint because he advised cruelty, for he had advised to kill the child. But is it not more cruel to let it live? asked the saint. 74. The Unsuccessful Those poor women always fail of success who become agitated and uncertain, and talk too much in presence of him whom they love. For men are most successfully seduced by a certain subtle and phlegmatic tenderness. 75. The Third Sex Quote, a small man is a paradox, but still a man. But the small woman seems to me to be of another sex in comparison with well-grown ones, unquote. said an old dancing master. A small woman is never beautiful, said old Aristotle. 76. The Greatest Danger had there not at all times been a larger number of men who regarded the cultivation of their mind, their, quote, rationality, unquote, as their pride, their obligation, their virtue, and were injured or shamed by all play of fancy and extravagance of thinking, as lovers of, quote, sound common sense, unquote, mankind would long ago have perished, Insipid insanity has hovered, and hovers continually over mankind as its greatest danger. That is precisely the breaking out of inclination in feeling, seeing and hearing, the enjoyment of the unruliness of the mind, the delight in human unreason. It is not truth and certainty that is the antithesis of the world, of the insane, but the universality and all-obligatoriness of a belief, in short, non-voluntariness in forming opinions. And the greatest labour of human beings hitherto has been to agree with one another regarding a great many things, and to impose upon themselves a law of agreement, indifferent whether these things are true or false. This is the discipline of the mind which has preserved mankind, but the counter-impulses are still so powerful that one can really speak of the future of mankind with little confidence. The ideas of things still continually shift and move, and will perhaps alter more than ever in the future. It is continually the most select spirits themselves who strive against universal obligatoriness the investigators of truth above all. The accepted belief, as the belief of all the world, continually engenders a disgust and new longing in the more ingenious minds, and already in the slow tempo which it demands for all intellectual processes, paren, the imitation of the tortoise, which is here recognized as the rule, end paren, makes the artists and poets runaways. It is in these impatient spirits that downright delight in delirium breaks out, because delirium has such a joyful tempo. Virtuous intellects, therefore, are needed. Ah, I want to use the least ambiguous words. Virtuous stupidity is needed. 
imperturbable conductors of the slow spirits are needed in order that the faithful of the great collective belief may remain with one another and dance their dance further it is a necessity of the first importance that here enjoins and demands we others are the exceptions and the danger we eternally need protection well there can actually be something said in favour of the exceptions, provided that they never want to become the rule. 77. The Animal with Good Conscience It is not unknown to me that there is vulgarity in everything that pleases southern Europe, whether it be Italian opera, paren, for example, Rossini's and Bellini's, End paren, or the Spanish adventure romance, paren, most readily accessible to us in the French garb of Gil Blas, end paren. But it does not offend me any more than the vulgarity which one encounters in a walk through Pompeii, or even with a reading of every ancient book. What is the reason of this? It is because shame is lacking here and because the vulgar always comes forward just as sure and certain of itself as anything noble, lovely, and passionate in the same kind of music or romance. Quote, the animal has its rights like man, so let it run about freely, and you, my dear fellow man, are still this animal in spite of all. End quote. That seems to me the moral of the case, and the peculiarity of southern humanity. Bad taste has its rights like good taste, and even a prerogative over the latter when it is the great requisite, the sure satisfaction, and, as it were, a universal language, an immediately intelligible mask, an attitude. The excellent select taste, on the other hand, has always something of a seeking, tentative character, not fully certain that it understands. It is never, and has never been popular. The mask is and remains popular. So let all this masquerade run along in the melodies and cadences, in the leaps and merriment of the rhythm of these operas, quite the ancient life. What does one understand of it if one does not understand the delight in the mask, the good conscience of all the masquerade? Here is the bath and the refreshment of the ancient spirit, and perhaps this bath was still more necessary for the rare and sublime natures of the ancient world than for the vulgar. On the other hand, a vulgar turn in northern works, for example in German music, offends me unutterably. There is shame in it. The artist has lowered himself in his own sight, and could not even avoid blushing. We are ashamed with him and are so hurt because we surmise that he believed he had to lower himself on our account. 78. What we should be grateful for. It is only the artists, and especially the theatrical artists, who have furnished men with eyes and ears to hear and see with some pleasure what everyone is in himself what he experiences and aims at. It is only they 
who have taught us how to estimate the hero that is concealed in each of these commonplace men, and the art of looking at ourselves from a distance as heroes, and, as it were, simplified and transfigured, the art of, quote, putting ourselves on stage, unquote, before ourselves. It is thus only that we get beyond some of the paltry details in ourselves. Without that art we should be nothing but foreground, and would live absolutely under the spell of the perspective which makes the closest and the commonest seem immensely large and reality in itself. Perhaps there is a merit of a similar kind in the religion which commanded us to look at the sinfulness of every individual man with a magnifying glass, and made the great, immortal criminal of the sinner, in that it put eternal perspectives around man. It taught him to see himself from a distance, and as something past, something entire. 79. The Charm of Imperfection I see here a poet, who, like so many men, exercises a higher charm by his imperfections than by all that is rounded off and takes perfect shape under his hands. Indeed, he derives his advantage and reputation far more from his actual limitations than from his abundant powers. His work never expresses altogether what he would really like to express, what he would like to have seen. He appears to have had the foretaste of a vision and never the vision itself. But an extraordinary longing for this vision has remained in his soul, and from this he derives his equally extraordinary eloquence of longing and craving. With this he raises those who listen to him above his work, and above all, quote, works, unquote, and gives him wings to rise higher than hearers have ever risen before, thus making them poets and seers themselves. They then show an admiration for the originator of their happiness, as if he had led them immediately to the vision of his holiest and ultimate verities as if he had reached his goal, and had actually seen and communicated his vision. It is to the advantage of his reputation that he has not really arrived at his goal. 80. Art and Nature The Greeks, paren, or at least the Athenians, and paren, liked to hear good talking, Indeed, they had an eager inclination for it, which distinguished them more than anything else from non-Greeks. And so they required good talking even from passion on the stage, and submitted to the unnaturalness of dramatic verse with delight. In nature, forsooth, passion is so sparing of words, so dumb and confused, or, if it finds words, so embarrassed and irrational and a shame to itself. We have now, all of us, thanks to the Greeks, accustomed ourselves to this unnaturalness on the stage, as we endure that other unnaturalness, the singing passion, and willingly endure it, thanks to the Italians. It has become a necessity to us, 
which we cannot satisfy out of the resources of actuality, to hear men talk well and in full detail in the most trying situations. It enraptures us at present when the tragic hero still finds words, reasons, eloquent gestures, and on the whole a bright spirituality, where life approaches the abysses, and where the actual man mostly loses his head, and certainly his fine language. This kind of deviation from nature is perhaps the most agreeable repast for men's pride. He loves art generally on account of it, as the expression of high, heroic unnaturalness and convention. One rightly objects to the dramatic poet when he does not transform everything into reason and speech, but always retains a remnant of silence. Just as one is dissatisfied with an operatic musician who cannot find a melody for the highest emotion, but only an emotional, quote, natural, unquote, stammering and crying, here nature has to be contradicted. Here the common charm of illusion has to give place to a higher charm. The Greeks go far, far in this direction, frightfully far as they constructed the stage as narrow as possible and dispensed with all effects of deep backgrounds, as they made pantomime and easy motion impossible to the actor, and transformed himself into a solemn, stiff, masked bogey, so they also deprived passion itself of its deep background, and have dictated to it a law of fine talk. Indeed, they have really done everything to counteract the elementary effect of representations that inspire pity and terror. They did not want pity and terror. With due deference, with the highest deference to Aristotle, but he certainly did not hit the nail, to say nothing of the head of the nail, when he spoke about the final aim of Greek tragedy. But let us look at the Gratian tragic poets with respect to what most excited their diligence, their inventiveness and their emulation. Certainly, it was not the intention of subjugating the spectators by emotion. The Athenian went to the theatre to hear fine talking, and fine talking was arrived at by Sophocles, pardon me this heresy. It is very different with serious opera. All its masters make it their business to prevent their personages being understood. Quote, An occasional word picked up may come to the assistance of the inattentive listener, but on the whole account the situation must be self-explanatory. The talking is of no account, unquote. so they think. And so they have all made fun of the words. Perhaps they have only lacked courage to express fully their extreme contempt for words. A little additional insolence in Rossini, and he would have allowed La 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 to be sung throughout, and it might have been the rational course. The personages of the opera are not meant to be believed, quote, in their words, unquote, but in their tones. That is the difference. That is the fine unnaturalness on account of which people go to the opera. Even the recitativo secco is not really intended to be heard as words and texts. 
This kind of half-music is meant rather, in the first place, to give the musical ear a little repose, paren, the repose from melody, as from the sublimest, and on that account the most strained enjoyment of this art, end paren. But very soon something different results, namely, an increased impatience, an increased resistance, a new longing for entire music, for melody. How is it with the art of Richard Wagner as seen from this standpoint? Is it perhaps the same? Perhaps otherwise? It would often seem to me as if one needed to have learned by heart both the words and the music of his creations before the performances. For without that, so it seemed to me, one may hear neither the words nor even the music. 81. Grecian Taste What is beautiful in it? asked a certain geometrician after a performance of the Iphigenia. There is nothing proved in it. Could the Greeks have been so far from this taste? In Sophocles, at least, quote, everything is proved, unquote. 82. Esprit Ungrecian The Greeks were exceedingly loyal and plain in all their thinking. They did not get tired of it, at least during their long flourishing period, as is so often the case with the French, who too willingly made a little excursion into the opposite, and in fact endured spirit of logic only when it betrayed its sociable courtesy its sociable self-renunciation by a multitude of such little excursions into its opposite. Logic appears to them as necessary as bread and water, but also like these as a kind of prison fare, as soon as it is to be taken pure and by itself. In good society one must never want to be in the right absolutely and solely, as all pure logic requires. Hence, a little dose of irrationality in all French esprit. The social sense of the Greeks was far less developed than that of the French in the present and the past. Hence, so little esprit in their cleverest men. Hence, so little wit. Even in their wags, hence, alas! But people who do not readily believe these tenets of mine, and how much of the kind I still have on my soul... Est rest magna tacere, says Marshall, like all garrulous people. 83. Translations One can estimate the amount of the historical sense which an age possesses by the way in which it makes translations and seeks to embody in itself past periods and literatures. The French of Corneli, and even the French of the Revolution, appropriated Roman antiquity in their manner for which we would no longer have the courage, owing to its superior historical sense, and Roman antiquity itself, how violently, and at the same time how naively did it lay hand on everything excellent and elevated belonging to the older Grecian antiquity, how they translated these writings into the Roman present, and how they wiped away intentional and unconcernedly the wing-dust of the butterfly moment. 
It is thus that Horace now and then translated Alcleus or Archliochus. It is thus that Propertius translated Callimachus and Philetas. Paren, poets of equal rank with Theocritus, if we be allowed to judge. End paren. But of what consequence was it to them that the actual creator experienced this and that, and had inscribed the indication thereof in his poem? As poets they were adverse to the antiquarian, the inquisitive spirit which precedes the historical sense. As poets they did not respect those essentially personal traits or names, nor anything peculiar to city, coast or century, such as its costume or mask, but at once put the present and the Roman in its place. They seem to us to ask, quote, should we not make the old new for ourselves, and adjust ourselves to it? Should we not be allowed to inspire this dead body with our soul? For it is dead indeed. How loathsome is everything dead! End quote. They did not know the pleasure of the historical sense. The past and the alien was painful to them, and as Romans it was an incitement to a Roman conquest. In fact, they conquered when they translated, not only in that they omitted the historical, no, they added also allusions to their present. Above all, they struck out the name of a poet and put their own in its place, not with the feeling of theft, but with the very best conscience of the Imperium Romanum. Eighty-four. The Origin of Poetry The lovers of the fantastic in man, who at the same time represent the doctrine of instinctive morality, draw this conclusion, quote, Granted that utility has been honoured at all times as the highest divinity, where then in all the world has poetry come from? This rhythmatizing of speech which thwarts rather than furthers plainness of communication, and which nevertheless has sprung up everywhere on the earth and still springs up as a mockery of all useful purpose the wildly beautiful irrationality of poetry refutes you ye utilitarians the wish to get rid of utility in some way that is precisely what has elevated man that is what has inspired him to morality and art End quote. Well, I must here speak for once to please the utilitarians. They are so seldom in the right that it is pitiful. In the old times, which called poetry into being, people still had utility in view with respect to it, and a very important utility. At the time when rhythm was introduced into speech, the force which arranges all the particles of the sentence anew, commands the choosing of the words, recolors the thoughts, and makes it more obscure, more foreign, and more distant. To be sure, a superstitious utility. It was intended that a human entreaty should be more profoundly impressed upon the gods by virtue of rhythm. After it had been observed that men could remember a verse better than in unmetrical speech. It was likewise thought that people could make themselves audible at greater distances by the rhythmical beat, and rhythmical prayer seemed to come nearer to the ear of the gods. 
Above all, however, people wanted to have the advantage of the elementary conquest which man experiences in himself when he hears music. Rhythm is a constraint. It produces an unconquerable desire to yield, to join in. Not only the step of the foot, but also the soul itself follows the measure. Probably the soul of the gods also, as people thought. They attempted, therefore, to constrain the gods by rhythm, and to exercise a power over them. They threw poetry around the gods, like a magic noose. There was a still more wonderful idea, and it has perhaps operated most powerfully of all in the originating of poetry. Among the Pythagoreans, it made its appearance as a philosophical doctrine, and as an artifice of teaching. But long before there were philosophers, music was acknowledged to possess the power of unburdening the emotions, of purifying the soul, of soothing the ferocia animi, and this was owing to the rhythmical element in music. When the proper tension and harmony of the soul were lost, a person had to dance to the measure of the singer. That was the recipe of this medical art. By means of it, the terpandia quieted the tumult. Empedocles calmed a maniac. Damon purged a love-sick youth. By means of it, even the maddened, revengeful gods were treated for the purpose of a cure. First of all, it was by driving the frenzy and wantonness of their emotions to the highest pitch, by making the furious mad, and the revengeful intoxicated with vengeance. All the orgiastic cults seek to discharge the ferocia of a deity all at once, and thus make an orgy, so that the deity may feel freer and quieter afterwards, and leave man in peace. Melios, according to its root, signified a soothing agency, not because the song is gentle itself, but because its after-effects makes gentle and not only in the religious song, but also in the secular song of the most ancient times. The prerequisite is that the rhythm should exercise a magical influence. For example, in drawing water or in rowing, the song is for the enchanting of the spirit supposed to be active thereby. It makes them obliging, involuntary, and the instruments of man. And as often as a person acts, he has occasion to sing. Every action is dependent on the assistance of spirits. Magic song and incantation appear to be the original form of poetry. When verse also came to be used in oracles, the Greeks said that the hexameter was invented at Delphi. The rhythm was here also intended to exercise a compulsory influence. To make a prophecy... That means originally, paren, according to what seems to me the probable derivation of the Greek word, and paren, to determine something. People thought that they could determine the future by winning Apollo over to their side. He who, according to the most ancient idea, is far more than a foreseeing deity, according as the formula is pronounced with literal and rhythmical correctness, it determines the future. The formula, however, is the invention of Apollo, who, as the god of rhythm, can also determine the goddesses of fate. 
looked at and investigated as a whole, was there ever anything more serviceable to the ancient superstitious species of human beings than rhythm? People could do everything with it. They could make labor go on magically. They could compel a god to appear, to be near at hand, and listen to them. They could arrange the future for themselves according to their will. They could unburden their own souls of any kind of excess, paren of anxiety, of mania, of sympathy, of revenge, end paren, and not only their souls, but the souls of the most evil spirits. Without verse a person was nothing. By means of verse a person became almost a god. Such a fundamental feeling no longer allows itself to be fully eradicated. Even now, after millenniums of long labor in combating such superstition, the very wisest of us occasionally becomes a fool of rhythm. Be it only that one perceives a thought to be truer when it has metrical form, and approaches with a divine hopping. Is it not a very funny thing, that the most serious philosophers, however anxious they are in other respects for strict certainty, still appeal to poetical sayings in order to give their thoughts force and credibility? And yet it is more dangerous to a truth when a poet assents to it than when he contradicts it. For, as Homer says, quote, The singers speak much falsehood. Unquote. 85. The Good and the Beautiful Artists glorify continually. They do nothing else. And indeed, they glorify all those conditions and things that have a reputation, so that man may feel himself good or great, or intoxicated, or merry, or pleased, and wise by it. Those select things and conditions whose value for human happiness is regarded as secure and determined are the objects of artists. They are ever lying in wait to discover such things, to transfer them into the domain of art. I mean to say that they are not themselves the valuers of happiness and of the happy ones, but are always pressing close to those valuers with the greatest curiosity and longing, in order immediately to use their valuations advantageously, as besides their impatience, they have also the big lungs of heralds and the feet of runners. They are likewise always among the first to glorify new excellency, and often seem to be those who first of all called it good, and valued it as good. This, however, as we have said, is an error. They are only faster and louder than the actual valuers. And who then are these? They are the rich and the leisurely. eighty six the theatre this day has given me once more strong and elevated sentiments and if i could have music and art in the evening i know well what music and art i should not like to have namely none of that which would fain intoxicate its hearers and excite them to a crisis of strong and high feeling those men 
with commonplace souls, who in the evening are not like victors on triumphal cars, but like tired mules to whom life has rather too often applied the whip. What would those men at all know of, quote, higher moods, unquote, unless there were expedients for causing ecstasy and idealistic strokes of the whip? And thus they have their inspirers, as they have their wines. But what is their drink, and their drunkenness, to me? Does the inspired one need wine? He rather looks with a kind of disgust at the agency and the agent which are here intended to produce an effect without sufficient reason, an imitation of the higher tide of the soul. What? One gives the mole wings and proud fancies before going to sleep, before he creeps into his hole? One sends him into the theatre and puts great magnifying glasses to his blind and tired eyes? Men, whose life is not, quote, action, unquote, but business, sit in front of the stage and look at strange beings to whom life is nothing more than business? This is proper, you say. This is entertaining. This is what culture wants. Well then, culture is too often lacking in me, for this sight is too often disgusting to me. He who has enough of tragedy and comedy in himself surely prefers to remain away from the theatre, or, as an exception, the whole procedure, theatre and public and poet included, becomes for him a truly tragic and comic play, so that the performed piece counts for little in comparison. He who is something like Faust and Manfred, what does it matter to him about the Fausts and Manfreds of the theatre? While it certainly gives him something to think about that such figures are brought into the theatre at all, the strongest thoughts and passions before those who are not capable of thought and passion, but of intoxication only, and those as a means to this end. And theatre and music, the hashish smoking and battle chewing of Europeans. Oh, who will narrate to us the whole history of narcotics? It is almost the history of quote, culture, unquote, the so called higher culture. End of Book Second, Part One.